You're listening to Wealth Tech on Deck, a podcast about the future of wealth management technology, brought to you by Life Yield. Here's your host, Jack Sherry. Welcome all to this very special edition of Wealth Tech on Deck. We've begun a, to record a new series of unique podcasts we're calling The Legends of Wealth Tech. This is our second Legends recording. Our first was with Lori Hardwick, Cheryl Nash, and Noreen Beeman in celebration of Women's History Month. These three leaders were among the first women to achieve CEO titles in our industry. Their podcast has become quickly one of our most popular shows. And as anyone who listens to our podcast knows, we talk about the confluence of human and digital advice from all angles with a real focus on disruptions, strategy, and creative paths that advance our industry. We also like to add a little historical context and perspective to help our listeners understand how and why things have evolved over time. Today, we will have a conversation with some folks who conceived the and built a, a truly game-changing approach to rendering financial advice. It was called Total Merrill, and it came to the marketplace in the early 2000s and changed how our industry does business forever. Of course, many people were involved in developing and executing this program and strategy. Today, we have three principal contributors to Total Merrill. They will describe how the program came about, what it was, and the results that were achieved from what turned into a 15-year run. To tell the story, I've invited John Thiel, who was head of Merrill's advisors as the program evolved, Rich Anister, who is now head of strategy at InvestNet and who spearheaded the packaging and marketing of the program at the time, along with many others, and John Connors, who is the CEO of Boathouse Group, which was the digital agency that worked closely with Rich and John and many others at Merrill to develop the program. So, John, Rich, and John, welcome to Wealth Tech on Deck. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, John Thiel, why don't you uh, set the scene of how the idea of Total Mail started? Like every brilliant idea, and I'm sure it has many mothers and fathers. I believe this all started with James Gorman, who was in a senior role at Merrill at the time. Please describe this, his big idea, and I know there were many others. And also tell us about what it was like to do business before Total Merrill, and then what the program did to change how advisors provide advice. Sure. So, I, I'm going to take a little step back. This is something, this sort of comprehensive approach to wealth management, which really tried to address all aspects of clients' financial lives, you know, even in the 80s, including real estate, which had begun then and it fits and starts and never really got adopted. It wasn't, you know, culturally acceptable. The industry hadn't evolved enough for advisors to stop and take time to think about banking and lending of all things or mortgages or any of that to want to be a banker. So through fits and starts, we had tried to broaden the capability set, you know, based on client need and, and our ability to deliver that. And over time, we built those capabilities, including owning, you know, two banks, which was really important to us is to have, to own the cash flow. If we're, if we're going to do financial planning and we don't have the cash flow, it's really hard to really understand if clients are on track or not. And so Lonnie Steffens was an architect of all of that. And as he exited the company in 2000, James Gorman was coming in first, ironically, as he was the McKenzie partner who covered Merrill Lynch and came up with our segmentation strategy and some of these literal strategies that he recommended. He ended up coming as our chief marketing officer and then a couple of years later ended up being the president of the wealth management business. So he got to implement his own advice, if you will, which was fun to watch. And the bottom line was, what were we trying to do? We were trying to, from a shareholder and, and company perspective, diversify our revenue from an advisor perspective, really make this ability to deliver across the balance sheet a seamless, integrated 
approach that was efficient, that wouldn't take too much time, especially for those who were afraid of doing things like having a loan turned down and things like that. And then, you know, for the client, we could meet all their capabilities in one spot and do it again in a mostly integrated way so it's easier and then give them buying power, right? So that we could negotiate better terms for them depending on how, you know, how strong the relationship was across those capabilities set. And so we began trying to do that. And as you can imagine, change in our business is not something that is welcomed always and it's slow to, for adoption. And we had, you know, 12,000 financial advisors who all felt their value proposition was probably a little bit different than what we were proposing. And so we went at it in all different ways. We ran our typical contests and, and did this and that. And we tried incentives and the incentives worked, but it didn't work for the people who really didn't need the incentive or didn't care about the incentive. And, you know, we didn't really have a history. Our marketing really was focused around the strength of our brand and safety and soundness of the organization. We didn't ever really have any marketing to support the business strategy, if you will. And I think what James and this team, Rich and John did, was we finally had a business strategy that we knew would work. So for instance, banking made an enormous impact because we now finally had net interest margin. We had deposits in a bank. We lent that money out. We kept, you know, you can keep the spread like a bank does because everything else was money markets before and you got your 19 basis points. So it had a real impact. But what they decided to do and uh, on the team was, was Paula Polito at the time running marketing. Um, James was now running the business is that they really wanted to build something that was that was consumable, most importantly, by the client that was in plain language and that would support the strategy and they would invest heavily in it. And that idea came out to look like something is called total Merrill. So again, think about it is you've got these capabilities, you've got client need, and you've got you know, the advisor who needed to, to see the same value set that everybody else said saw. And the confluence of all these with that marketing support gave it the push yep. over yep. so that clients could begin to ask, hey, what's total Merrill? So, Rich, you were uh, there at the dawning of this wonderful program. And for those that may not be familiar with what it was like way back when, prior to that, it was a transactional business, sell, 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 individual products, funds. It was the emergence early days of separately managed accounts in the advisory space, fee-based. So basically, Rich, you and Paula and John, uh, John Connors were handed the the challenge of raising more money, getting deeper penetration, all that stuff. So what do you guys do about it? No one was welcoming this new idea, I'm quite sure, as you get started, right? I think it's great. And, uh, you know, how many years later, John, I remembered exactly as you just said it, right? <laughs> so that's a good thing. And the challenge we had was how do you package this all up, right? We had the components. I remember John and John and John, we'd sit there and we have CMA, we've got banking, all the points that John Thiel just made. And you had a, you know, kind of a, a great group of financial advisors, though, but what they had been trained in where they were operating off of is a more brokerage model. And as John pointed out, so there were incentives to kind of move them along. And those who thought about financial wellness well before it was uh, you know, framed as financial wellness were leaned into it. But how did you get the rest of the you know, advisory force to kind of get behind this? And it is interesting to think about, you know, it was really now the business strategy. We moved beyond and, and I was fortunate enough to be at Merrill and we were doing great commercials and we we're just kind of talking about it. It's like you know, when we had you know, the bull and we did these commercials and they were really powerful. And Paula always was really thoughtful and challenged John and I 
uh, how do you use the bull as this icon differently? And we had it smash through the glass at one time, got to articulate a business strategy of helping boomers get to retirement and change the dynamic. We were kidding. You know, we had the live bull at a national sales meeting. I mean, what a kick that got from, you know, folks seeing live bull. But really was how do you then package up all these things that we weren't getting credit for? We weren't getting credit from everything John talked about from our clients, from our advisors or from the street. So it really became an important packaging exercise. And John Connors and I would know more than John Thiel. There was a whole bunch of work done and really interesting and fun work done to package it. And I always remember there was one John Connors. It ended up being total Merrill, but we tested a lot of ideas like Merrill Lynch mosaic, right? Because it was all these pieces of your financial life. It was going to be really important to thread those things together. And so that really became package this business strategy and use marketing as a much more powerful tool. And then it was proven to the advisors. So I remember being kind of one of the earlier uses of data. So John Thiel, we were looking at an advisor's books and said, if you did you know, one or two or three or more buckets of total Merrill, we were making the correlation on revenue, client retention, client loyalty. And she really had, it, it was some really great folks, uh, Bill Krieger, Stuart Outschiller, some wonderful names I remember who were running these models. And so it became a tool to help articulate to the advisors, look at this business strategy makes this kind of sense, the way we're packaging it up. And I think we did a really cool kind of neat way of packaging it. That's just one part of the marketing and then giving them the proof points of what this was going to do for their business and how they could deliver that better degree of advice and move beyond brokerage was just a really interesting way to kind of package all the pieces together. And Rich, if you'd comment, I'll say it bluntly, the wealth management business is not known for its marketing. In fact, you might be the first firm I'm aware of that actually did marketing, maybe, because certainly you had the brand thing going with the bull and so forth. Really spectacular ads for those who were around at the time, you'll remember. But talk about that, because that was a pretty significant aspect to the story. You really deployed marketing in a meaningful way. Yeah, I think we did. And you had know, a great partner like John and great business partners. You had Paul, you had Andy Saperstein, John Anything great in this world is never done by just like a small little cadre. It's really done by a a good cadre, you know, a bigger cadre. And so I think that things, some of the interesting stuff we did, again, from a marketing perspective, segmenting the advisors, segmenting the types of clients, using data in a different way. That was the first my exposure to really using data in an interesting way, which is really what marketing is about versus branding. And then, you know, there was a, a couple of very interesting tools and we had this a tool called Merrill Lynch Advisor. I think it went to a million. It's a magazine that went to a million Merrill Lynch clients. And we kind of used it as a way to go over the top of some of those advisors who may not be telling the story to their clients. So we were touching a million advisors and we were telling all of these total Merrill stories. And there was a great group of people, I would say from a marketing perspective, it was one of the earliest really, and I think innovative and powerful uses of content marketing. We really told the total Merrill stories and you had people who are engaged in banking and small business lending and all these different ways it was affecting their life. We're able to get that out to the end client and they were bringing it back into the advisors and the advisors were seeing this benefit. And then they all kind of, John, you knew the advisors are all very competitive and watch what each other was doing. And all of a sudden you see a story, you know, your fellow FA helping a client in a way that you're not helping your clients. And they were, I want to get in the magazine. I want to start doing things like that. So it's a tactic, but it was a strategy of using content marketing and data in different ways. Actually, a side note, I'm a Merrill Lynch client. And I remember receiving that that content you just described. I go, wow, that's pretty cool. Because 
for our listeners. That stuff didn't happen back then. This is that was a whole new, it was a brave new world. So, Mr. Connors, you are uh, the master of the narrative, and I imagine you were called in to uh, help uh, sort out this narrative that became Total Merrill. And one of the things I appreciate about your narrative abilities is most of it's true. Just kidding, my friend. Anyway. No, no, that was an important qualifier. (laughs) (laughs) Talk a little bit about you came in and and I'm assuming and you told me a little bit about it, but share some more if you would. You came in to kind of pull together to help work with the the people like John Thiel, Riley Etheridge, who I'm sure we'll talk about at some point, many others. John Hogarty on the business side, Paul Polito, who was, uh, I think at the time, Rich's boss, who had played a vital role in all this. So your job is to come up with the ideas that turned into Total Mail. So talk about that. How did that all come about? Yeah, so I think, you know, to your point and to Rich's point about team, it was a clear strategy, right? And we had sort of come up with this visual icon to sort of visually represent it because we needed to create artifacts to that narrative point so that people could start to see and understand it was more than a line. We created a line that was your money works harder when it works together so that there was a benefit related to Total Merrill. And then John and Richard both talked about it, but the bull had been on ice for 20 years. And so the bull in the China shop right. hadn't That's been, right. you know, that there was an early 70s spot and we brought the bull back and it started with a casting call for the bull because there was no, the bull from <laughs> 20 years ago had become beef jerky. And so... <laughs> We, we ran a casting call and, and seeing a casting call for bulls is unlike a casting call for anything else. There was a firm, there was a cowboy out of this, uh, Robin from Turtle Ranch. No lie, the bull's name was Dollar from the get-go. Wyoming, Wyoming, right? John? From Wyoming, yeah. And here I'm running my firm at the time. We were about 15 people. We had sort of scored this Merrill Lynch opportunity and it was massive. And at the sales meeting that Rich and John referenced, we were bringing Dollar out on stage in front of all these high-power Wall Street you know, investment types. And John Connors was insuring the bull at Merrill Lynch at the biggest conference with all their salespeople. I was pinned to CNBC trying to figure out whether the company was over before it started. Because if it gored John <laughs> Thiel or James Gorman, I was a dead man right from the get-go. But then it was a home run. We brought the bull back, uh, partly to John's point, to energize the sales force, to energize the advisors, right? Because as you know, Merrill's advisors were known as the thundering herd. And they were just, they, they had a commonality between the clients. The clients had a certain mindset. They were bold. The advisors were bold. And the bull kind of captured that. And it was just a really good team, a really clear strategy. And it was a fun one to execute. We had uh, Jack. Just, so we brought the bull. We brought the bull back, and we did some really interesting and it was like I said, fun stuff. And we were at a shootout in California, and I think it happened right. You were shooting the bull. You're, you're, yeah, yeah. You're, no, uh, uh, <laughs> we had two good stories about that. We had two we have real good stories. If I take a little sidebar on the bull, so one was sure. that. So we were out at this, you know, the photo shoot, uh, filming shoot of it, and so uh, it was right after Christmas. So my family came with me, and they were banging around California a little bit and stuff. My son was three or four years old, and so. I brought him and I had him kind of go up and pet the bull and, you know, the trainers were there and all that stuff. And the bull does what a bull does. And he quickly moved his head like that. And I pulled my three, four year old. My wife was, you know, less than pleased with that one. But John Connors, do you remember we had a director who wanted to get the POV of the bull and he strapped a camera on top of the bull's head. And this bull 
a dollar ahead of him said, this would be a great shot. We'll have it, you know, panoramic. And then we'll have a view of it from the bull's point of view with the camera on his head. This bull, the dollar started charging, just running, going as fast as he could. You're seeing pieces of the camera. I mean, it's a big $100,000 camera. He's just <laughs> flying off and the bull knows to go straight into the trailer. Like if there's a white line, he does all this. I'm watching it and there's pieces of the camera flying off. And he goes into the uh, trailer and it shears the top of the camera off and just gone, right? This camera is gone. I turned to John and Bob Mearley was standing next to me. I said, I'm glad that was the director's idea and not ours. <laughs> it, was something, it, was, it, was, it was something else. That's it was crazy. fun. That's great. So John Thiel, name we've mentioned a few times, and I know he was vital to the strategy. I believe it was his strategy. It was James Gorman, of course. Now he is the mm -hmm. chairman and CEO of Morgan Stanley. We'll talk a little bit more about that later, because as I'll make the case and we'll see what my colleagues, whether they agree or not, the total Merrill strategy ultimately gets played out at Morgan Stanley, but more about that later. But John Thiel, talk a little bit about Gorman's bright idea. It was a bright one for sure. And then Assume at some point you it winds up in your lap to go make sure the advisors embrace this idea. And knowing advisors as I do, having tried a few of these sorts of things over time, nothing as grand as what you guys did. Advisors don't always want to go along whatever the home office has to say. So why don't you talk about Gorman and how that kicked off and then how you had to then make sure that the advisors thought it was a good idea along with you. Yeah. So these ideas actually came to us when he was our McKinsey partner. I mean, these are ideas that were not brand new. These were things that, you know, he had talked to Lonnie Steffens and Dave Kamansky and Dan Tully about for years. You know, the segmentation strategy, the notion of measuring revenue versus production credits, of revenue being everything the firm receives versus that commission or that fee that we get on investment management. And, you know, advisors are compensated on the production credit, not the revenue, but an awareness for these advisors to understand that they were contributing more than just their production credits. Now that's a double-edged sword, right? Because then they want to get paid more. But, you know, are the evolved, we put little things in around rewards around their revenue, but it was to sort of coalesce everybody around this notion that one, primarily it was the, what the clients wanted and needed. Two, it was, it, it helped retention of clients and it helped, you know, the clients become stronger and more loyal, do more business with us. It was absolutely uh, important for the firm to, to expand that strategy. But what James did is he pulled all those things together and then for the first time ever, took marketing dollars, significant marketing dollars, and put it against the strategy. The thing that I think he did that was the most unique is that he invested significantly in the idea and understand that there was no detail too small. On the statements, we Paula changed the statement. So the total Merrill icon was now on the CMA statement. So CMA took a back seat, which CMA was named the most innovative financial product in the 19, 1976 by Forbes, right? So we had this iconic thing and we replaced it with total Merrill. And it just went through every communication, everything. It became the fabric of how we talked about what we do with clients over that time. So to me, his genius, if you will, his contribution was taking his own advice and others' experiences. And when he got his hands on the steering wheel, he invested on in all aspects with all stakeholders, all constituents to make sure that it happened. Then he held his leadership team accountable. And then we tried, obviously, to compel the advisors to do that. And there were all sorts of things, right? There was incentive compensation aligned. There were things, there was recognition. There was the, the magazine where people, you know, fought to get, you know, their client, their story in the magazine. But... We talk about that bull and we laugh about it, but you know, 
Merrill Lynch had have very unique culture. And that bowl was iconic. The last time it actually came out was in 1987 after the crash. So after the crash in 87 was the last time the bowl was featured. And having be sitting there, knowing that it was going to happen, but still unable to suppress the emotion, almost like tears of joy that yes, we're yes. back. Damn it. We're yes. back. And that's how yeah. everybody in that room felt like now we've taken control. And James, James, you know, he did the investment. He did it. He put his neck out to do that, along with incredible talent like Paula and Rich and John and, and everybody else that was involved to make that happen. You know, just to, recalling all that, because I tend to be a student of all this stuff. What was fascinating is I remember the bull came back and I'm a client, you know, it's less that I'm a client, I'm just an observer and like to see people do smart stuff. And I'm like, wow, that is so smart. It's just, it represents, well, for those that may not know, the CMA account that uh, John referenced, that started retail investing as we know it today. It was late 70s. It was being 18%, I think, was the interest rate on a money market account. You couldn't get that money poured out of banks into Merrill Lynch. Then everybody copied them, Fidelity. Vanguard, the rest, everybody copied all this money went into uh, money market accounts. And then that was the fuel that lit the uh, mutual fund growth in the 80s. And it became multi-trillion dollar business, which it wasn't before that, starting with a CMA account. And that was the sort of presence and place that- uh, hey Jack, can, can I just add one thing? Oh, yeah, sure. That Don Regan was the CEO, our treasury secretary. And there's a video we have, and he shares a story when he had his leadership team go off and study it. They all came back and their recommendation was a unanimous no. And Don Regan said, well, do I get a vote? And they're like looking around going, yeah, you're the chairman. He goes, good. I vote yes. So we're doing it. So go do it. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> as that was uh, taking place, as they were, as that unleashed all the money out of banks, literally into brokerage firms. The whole industry was beneficiary and mutual funds is where they wound up. And that went on through the 80s. Now we're fast forwarding here to James Gorman watching the industry become a very transactional mutual fund oriented business. But managed money was starting to come out. Uh, that was in the late 80s, early 90s. It started to gain some traction, but even there it was pretty select. But by the time uh, Gorman looked around, he said, you know, it's we, we get as a, as a business and his responsibility as the president, his responsibility is bottom line in terms of stock price and all the rest. It's not on, on commissions, which was a big driver at Merrill at the time, as you well know, John, and have it to be on revenue which is what the firm is about, that shift, he brought them along, right? you want to comment on that, how that shift occurred and how, frankly, you played an important role in getting the advisors to see it was in their best interest, their client's best interest, to shift from just selling stuff to getting paid fees on, on what they had. Yeah. And there was real competitive pressure. Uh, well, everybody forgets from 82 to 2000, the S&P returned 12% on average of return every year as you doubled your money every six years. And Vanguard, John Bola was out there offering stuff for tiny basis points, and it was performing at 12% a year. So so why would I pay a front-end load, a back-end load, any kind of, why do I want friction? They were being educated and digitization happened, right? With the NASDAQ and fractionals. And, and so there was tons of cost pressure on the investment management in the brokerage business. So it was really an education campaign. And it was really the idea of as Rich said, we had this banking component and we had this investment balance sheet component. So there was two out of three. You had to have 
a, we created an account called Beyond Banking, which was CMA with more bank-like capabilities. So free wire transfers, things like that, right? Credit so cards, we did that. Credit cards, yeah. And then we had a credit card. We we created, we had Visa Signature, which was unbelievable till Dick All Durbin new, folks, changed. all new back then. All new, all new. And then we had the Merrill Plus card, right? Which was an actual credit card. The Visa Signature was a delayed debit card with rewards. And then we had financial planning. So that was one thing. And then this other bucket was fee-based investment management because we were trying to get the, it was credit. So it could be mortgage, it could be securities-based lending, eventually structured product as we built that structured lending capability out. It was uh, trust. So you know, we had a trust company, Maryland's trust company, that was the fifth largest trust company that no one knew about in the country. By the way, we were the fourth largest bank at the time we got with Beyond Bank and we became the fourth largest bank as measured by deposits. And then insurance, right? So risk management, right? To, to enter that. So those were the capabilities. And we created this, we created a compensation mechanism for that as, as you could penetrate. We used data so we could show every client they had across those seven characteristics and whether you had the client had availed themselves of this opportunity and then built incentives. And, you know, we had some recognition trips and things like that. That was sort of the usual playbook, uh, as well as educating them on what it meant from a revenue impact, what that activity helped. And then we, we had indirect benefits for their revenue growth, right? So they got more CA support, as an example, if they had, you know, the revenue was a certain sales assistant. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So those were some of the the tactics and they worked. So Rich and John, you got Gorman with this crazy strategy, which is brilliant, really. So nothing crazy about it, just new and different and no one thought of. You got guys like Thiel and others and his team making it happen. You guys had to make sure that the folks out in the field were willing to, to embrace this stuff. How'd you guys do it? What'd that look like? I'll start, John, and then and then go. I think and John made the point before and, and we've been kind of talking about it. It goes to a fundamental that sometimes gets skipped, right? We had a very clear business strategy, and as John Thiel pointed out, right, Gorman did a great job of making sure we all understood that, and Paula and Andy, and, and, and John, so we all kind of had that, and then it was like, okay, how do you package this thing up, as we talked about, and then how do you get it out into the field? And you just started had the use of digital, so it's hard to understand now that, oh, you don't have APIs and you know all the social media methodologies and, and search engine optimization. We didn't have any of that stuff, but we were beginning on the path to using digital communication channels to get it out into the world as well. And so I think you go back to that, getting it, it was simple in retrospect, It was, but it was hard to execute. We had data that said it was a real value to advisors and why go to a revenue view and why understand your clients. It, I am doing great with my clients. I'm making good money and I'm trading stocks and bonds for them. Well, you'll do this much better and your clients will stay that much longer and these other good things will happen. We had proof of it. Right. It wasn't, you know, now you, you know, you have data scientists who turn this stuff out, you know, and we have things like that where I currently am. But that was new. Right. And that was a really important way to get people to buy into it. And then you combine that, John, with what you were doing from all the field incentives. And then you were marketing directly to financial advisors. I, John can talk more to it. A lot of our marketing was as much to the end client as it was to the advisor. And we were using those two components together. And I think it was an interesting way for us to think about it. And we were really clear about it. Right? Sometimes we were like, oh, we're doing our advertising on TV and that's to get people. But that was to get advisors and clients engaged and aligned on the same story. Not brilliant as you look at it now, but probably different than what most people were doing at that it time. It was groundbreaking. Yeah, aligned to the- Brilliant and I think it was brilliant, but it was groundbreaking. No one was, again, for our audience, especially our y- younger uh, listeners, 
this stuff didn't exist. You know, this kind of smart strategy deployed through smart marketing, deployed through smart sales management. I didn't, I didn't see it anywhere else. I don't recall it happening anywhere else. And you give this collective team, there's three of us representing kind of three different angles on it, but as we've all talked about, and I made the comment, I, we were all aligned to it. It got momentum and it got power because Gorman did a good job and, and, and John did a good job and Paul did a good job and I did it and John Connors did and John Hogarty. You mentioned a bunch of names. I couldn't remember everybody or, you know, in the moment, but we were all aligned to it. And, that, and I think that's just you know a really important part of the story, how we all got behind a smart business strategy. But John, I'll leave you with the... One piece, and Jack, you and I have talked about this before, but I'll, I want to reiterate, like John and Paula believed in the advisors 110%, right? And I think you see a lot of leaders today that treat the advisors as second rate, secondary importance, don't matter. They think they're smarter than the advisors and they think they're more important than the advisors. And I think, so it started with respect, like, because if you don't respect the advisor as an important layer, you're going to lose. So I think that was one at the same time that John's comment about how they were investing more in marketing overall, they were at the same time cutting the ad budget a little bit, right? So, because they were buying books and buying advisors and investing in the statements and all the marketing capital M. But Rich will remember like the budget, the ad budget was actually going down. And so we were in the pure smoke and mirrors business of, because <laughs> you know the game and, you know, John's lived it. We've talked about it. Rich and I have talked about it. At a certain point, you can only send so many emails and letters to advisors and they believe you anymore, right? And so at a certain point, the people they're most concerned about is the client that's going to walk in their office and say and ask for something. And if they're not prepared and they look unprepared or not smart when the client walks in. So part of our strategy that Rich was alluding to before was by being on Sunday golf, we didn't have money to be everywhere. But we, we knew the advisors were watching Sunday Golf. And by being there, when they saw Total Merrill, they believed their clients were going to walk in and ask for it. And so we were going outside in to just reinforce. And so it was with the bull. It was with Total Merrill. It was on Sunday Golf. And coupled with all the pieces that John and Rich talked about and that pure belief in the importance of the advisor, I think, was part of the, mm-hmm. the advertising mm-hmm. way it got executed. I'm going to add one other component to it because I do think it was we talked about a little bit. It was innovative, but it required some really smart marketing people on the team and John's team. We created a tremendous amount of leverage in what in the way we created the content stories. So a lot of times you'd say, all right, you know, in those days, John, you wanted big advertising budgets and you want to go out and talk to the big directors out in California and it's Ridley Scott will do this brand campaign. You had all that kind of stuff. We started in John's team to his credit and the, the John Von Brockle and Bob Mirrelis and Shabbat Ivani, remember all those folks, John? Like, what we were doing is saying, like, all right, let's not do that. Let's have handheld. Bob Mirrelis was kind of taking handheld cameras, and we'd go write a story for Advisor Magazine, film it, and John's team would help clean it up. And that was so we were producing television commercials for a fraction, and we were able to use it in digital channels. We were using it in print, we were using it on television, and we really got a lot of leverage. And if you think in today's world, that would be that. Creator, we, we were kind of in this little quasi-creator economy way before <laughs> approach, way before we would even know what that is. But it was a really important part of it. 
I probably thought about it as leverage at the time because we're like, hey, this is the budget got cut a little bit, but we were able to create a tremendous amount of really powerful stories of people experiencing Total Merrill and clients benefiting from Total Merrill in a way that, you know, if we had done big television commercials, we would have done one and that would have been it. We had a library of 50 things for the cost of doing one. John Connors, I remember you telling me this. uh, We've chatted about this before. I I can't remember the exact content piece, but it was uh, basically it was kind of everything you needed to know about Total Merrill. And so because I didn't know the Sunday golf piece, that was just brilliant. They had to actually read it, right? Isn't that part of the story? Talk a little bit about how you use that as a way to kind of give them a primer on, on what they need to know. Rich was talking about the content strategy, and we created that visual and it was an exploded out visual with all the products and services related to all the layers of Total Barrel. And what ended up happening is it ended up on a lot of bulletin boards because a lot of times collateral would just stay in the closet, right? But it ended up, Rich is, we got a visual here for the podcast, but <laughs> it became a demonstration. I don't have an original anymore, but I still have this because it was a exactly. thoughtful way to kind of represent uh, financial wellness to a degree too. Exactly. So it was That's great. One, of the, one of the artifacts. Yeah. Yeah. Very smart. So gentlemen, I could go on forever on this. I love this stuff. But I want to throw this up as something for each of you to consider. There's a lot to be proud of here. You really did change the industry if you haven't picked up on it. You really, the this, this shift from transaction to fees, the shift from, again, transaction to planning, the shift from just one side of the balance sheet to the other side, to the liability side, which wasn't done before, all sorts of new and different things. And then, frankly, the complexity of integrating it all in terms of the client relationship and dealing with all that kind of stuff. So my question out to the three of you, and I'd love to have you take turns kicking around, is... When you think back on on Total Merrill, what are you most proud of in terms of what you all accomplished? John, do you want to want to kick it off? Yeah, and one of the things I'm remiss, and there were other people, right? Bob Mulholland, Dan Suntag, who were leading the whole organization. That none of this would have happened. We were in here. We got the hall pass to go make this happen, and so I just wouldn't want to go without saying people like that. There's so many people that contributed to this. So it's not the three of us and and Paula. It was so many more people. I just think it was it was the first time where I was truly, truly proud of what we represented for clients, that we were actually demonstrating that we were putting their potential needs first and that we were recognizing and building and investing in the capabilities that would align with the, their financial lives and their priorities and ultimately, you know, achieve outcomes for them. And that, listen, successful retirement is a balance sheet exercise. It is not an investment account balance exercise. You need all parts of it. And so we we actually built the implementation roadmap for financial planning. And that I'm so proud of that. And then it just got better and better with capabilities and technology and all the things that have come since. That's great. Okay, Rich? Yeah, you know, similar. I mean, we changed the trajectory of advice and the advisor in the industry, helping millions of more people end up in a better place, right? And that shift would probably come. We accelerated it. We found a way to make it simple for people to understand. We made it simpler to implement. And, you know, being able to solve more problems for a client, you have all those kind of, we have great language around it, financial wellness. There's other ways we can frame it now. Total Merrow was a precursor to, or the the first step. And really it's, it's that simple. We changed the way advice gets delivered in the trajectory of advice. That's great. That's great. How about you, John Connors? Now the, I'm going to keep the drumbeat going here on the same pattern. It's I think it was the integrity of it. And I think, you know, Charlie Merrill had the line 
the client's interest must come first. And I think a lot of times in the financial services and in a lot of industries now, that interest gets lost in the return for margin and shareholder value and all the layers there. And I think for some reason, there was this point in time when all the stars were aligned, when integrity really mattered from the leadership on the call now to the advisors through to the clients, through the product innovation. And it was incredible to be a part of. That's great. John Thiel, when you were talking earlier about the bull and all that, it sort of kind of welled up with a sense of pride. I just remember that experience from back then. It was something was not affiliated with the organization. I was a client, but you know, I wasn't in it like you guys were and the many others that you've talked about. It was visceral. You could feel it. You know, it's you kind of it was like it, it's, it's hard to describe. It's one of those rare things you don't see very often, frankly, around financial services. And I think, John Connors, you just hit the nail on the head. And each of Richard and John Thiel have commented along the same lines. It's just uh, it's the integrity. It's the, it's the right thing to do. It's, you know, everybody wins. It's all good. So, And just one thing, just to ratify that, if you wonder about the feeling, go look at every firm and see how many executives have Merrill Lynch on their resume mm-hmm. that are now leading all the firms. Yep. It permeated and spread across the street. I mean, it, was, it wasn't it was just a feeling. It was talent in a feeling. Yeah. Um, yeah. One follow-up on that. We got requests for the music for all different purposes, but one uh, family member called and asked for it for their funeral, for their oh funeral of an advisor <laughs> who wanted the Total Merrill music. And it's still on the Visa call. When, you, when you're on hold on the Visa card, they still play the music. That is wild. I have not heard that. I love that. I love that. So you actually have uh, delivered me to where I wanted to go. So uh, as as, uh, many of you know, I'm a huge fan of Morgan Stanley and James Gorman and all that they're doing there presently. And I find it fascinating and not at all surprising that James and Andy Saperstein was his right hand at Merrill, as I recall. They basically took all that they learned at Merrill and all that they did at Merrill, and they took it across the street to Morgan Stanley, and they're the industry leader right now for, it's arguable that they're the leader, and doing many of the same things, but frankly, taking it to the next level. So maybe, uh, gentlemen, if you would just weigh in on your observation of what Gorman has done, uh, what he did at Merrill, and how that has translated to uh, the worthy competitor called Morgan Stanley. Well, he, he evolved and learned because I remember a very early meeting when he said, we, we need the advisor to do this. He said, so just go tell them. And we all looked around and like, mm, that's not how it works. <laughs> They're like, you can't tell them. They're free agents. <laughs> so what he's done now, and you know, a lot of this, by the way, was his recommendations to us as, his, as in his consultant role. And I think what he did is he learned how to do it at Merrill Lynch. And then he took those learnings and left the biases behind and went out and built like his acquisition of E-Trade and Solium. It's just the greatest way to capture money in motion. You institutionalize that asset flow. By the way, provide a very important service to those participants, whether it be the retirement or the equity plan business, and give them an easy way to deliver an outcome. So I, I think what he's done is he's learned, he, he, he knew what to do, he learned how to do it, and then he's taken it and he's perfecting it and he's investing in the wealth management business in a way that it's hard to see anybody else come close. And one other thing I would just add to that, John, I know you believe this to be true as well. He surrounds himself with smart people, just like you did at Merrill. Rich, what are your observations about that? I agree. Morgan Stanley doing a fantastic job. I've got to slightly put a little commercial in here, though, because I know this little company out in Berwyn, PA, that does a lot of the things that help support 
that delivery of more holistic advice. This little group called InvestNet it seems to have a real good group of people of putting their stuff together. Morgan Stanley's a client. Merrill Lynch is a client. Independent RIAs, broker dealers. But you know, Merrill Lynch is a starting point. When I met Bill Crager and ended up becoming the chief strategy officer here, we had our first conversation, and I said I saw where his vision was, and he wanted to go far with what we had thought. I said. I mean, that's what we were doing with Total Merrill, but we didn't have the APIs. We don't have the data that you have. We have the leading financial planning software. We've got it with Money Guide. We've got more data aggregation through Yodly, you know, APIs that plug in all the CRM systems. We've got the broadest set of solutions from credit and investments and insurance and trust and health. Like, you know, so I'm not, it's a little bit of a commercial, but I think what James did then, John, all the way back was kind of, you know, he was framing out what this thing could look like. We helped start it at Total Merrill, and you have companies like uh, us and InvestNet really proud to power this uh, for yep, a whole yep. ton of our clients. So I think James done a great job. And if that was the first thread of bringing this to light, you're seeing it now being impacted. Again, this goes back to in my view of being we change the nature of advice. My greatest joy coming to work every day, what I do is I'm still on this path and trying to help more and more advisors solve more and more needs in a really integrated, intelligent way. That's great. John Connors, what do you think? I don't hold a candle to John and Rich in terms of knowledge of James Gorman's strategy. I, uh, you know, I think the results speak for themselves. I think the only piece I always wish, and you know this, Jack, we've talked about it, is that they put the advisors out a little more in front. I think there's always that sort of McKinsey instinct to put the brains out in front. And I think there's more... But James Gorman does not need to hear from John Connors what he thinks about how to run the business, uh, to be clear. But I think they could herald the advisors a little bit more the way John and Paula and Rich did, because I think it builds a culture that's even stronger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I happen to agree with you. John, Theo, looks like you have a comment there. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that is the asset of this organ these organizations. It's the people yeah, that ride yeah. up and down the elevator and and delivering, you know, working now in the asset management industry as a director, you know, even when I've gotten up them to change the world that retail, like that has got such a negative connotation. And I'm like, I would put our best advisors up against any of your inst any institutional person as it relates to acumen and expertise and all the others. So these are very smart and capable people. Their paychecks, you know, sort of represent how talented they are. And so I agree with you, John, that they are the value proposition and we got to make sure we keep them, you know, in the right light. That's great. So John, Rich and John, thanks for a great conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. this I have to say this is my favorite uh, podcast we've done as yet because it's a uh, wonderful topic with some wonderful folks. So as we look to wrap up, I'd like to ask each of you, normally we ask our guests to have three takeaways. I'm going to ask one each from each of you. What, what's a key takeaway you'd like to share with our audience? John Thiel, you want to go first? And then Rich and then John? Well, I, you know, from an industry perspective, it, and Rich said it, we're not done. Uh, we need everybody to, to think about these client outcomes this way. I mean, people really want to do something with their money. You know, their performance is important, but it's only in context of what they're trying to accomplish. And so we really do have to continue to use the leverage of technology capabilities, software, smart, intelligent withdrawal software, things like that that can, you know, address the, the tax drag and other components like that, better understand risk, especially as things evolve. So I, I just think aspirationally, there's a lot more to do. And, you know, I personally... I'm excited about helping anybody uh, think about that. Gotcha. Rich? 
totally agree with John. I'll take it a different direction to not be repetitive. Just embrace and remember. And sometimes you're right in at these wonderful, extraordinary moments in your career when you're with a group of people. John called it integrity. And we had so many people. I was trying to remember Gail, not remember, Gail Gross, John Ellenberg, people still at Merrill. I mean, like it was a tremendous, and all the people we've mentioned and some we've forgotten. But wow, when you look back on it, what great times we had. We innovated. We did some really cool stuff. And you can only be a part of something really extraordinary when you're with a extraordinary group of people working towards the same end and it never gets done alone. And so as you kind of think about this conversation, it's bringing back all those hard times, long nights, whatever you want to throw in there, but really fun and lifelong friends. Great. Great. And the stock was $97 a share to prove the point. That always makes you feel better. John Connors. Yeah. And I think the, there's a lot of incrementalism in today's world, right? And a lot of people play it conservative and safe. And I think the boldness that Merrill team exhibited to put the client's interest first, to make a big move, to try and change the game. Uh, I just think there's not as many to have been there, be a part of it. There's not that many opportunities to change the game anymore. That's great. Thank you, John Thiel, Rich Anniser, John Connors. Thanks for taking this uh, very important trip down memory lane of the great work you and your colleagues did in changing our industry for the better. For our audience, if you've enjoyed our podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share what we're doing here at Wealth Tech on Deck. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again to John and John and, and Rich. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Really, really enjoyed Thank it. Thank you, Thank you, Jack. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wealth Tech on Deck, our ongoing conversation about improving financial outcomes for all. This podcast is brought to you by LifeYield and produced by Reverb. Subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with our host, Jack Sherry, on LinkedIn and Twitter. And for more information about our perspective on the future of financial advice, visit our website at lifeyield.com.